All right. Well, good morning. It is so good to see your smiling faces. And I'm completely just assuming that you're smiling because I obviously can't tell. Um, but it's great to see you. And uh, for you who are joining us at home, it's uh, great to have you with us too. Uh, and it's a little, this is all different. We're all kind of learning this new normal and what it means to be the church together. And I appreciate what Dave said as he opened us. It really has been a big learning curve for all of us to figure out what does it look like to be a community of people who are learning to follow Jesus together when we don't really feel like we're together and physically we're not. And that's actually why in this series we're, we're looking at uh, the book of First Peter. It's a letter written by one of Jesus' closest followers, one of the, the leaders of the early church, as he wrote to the church as it's kind of scattered around the Roman Empire and invited them to think about what it means to be the people of God living together even as they're scattered. So we're going to continue in that this morning. But first, uh, as we start, I've been thinking a little bit about gardening. Uh, now, part of that is in the summertime, our family spends a lot of time in the garden. My wife loves gardening, and we have a, a very small backyard, but in it, we, uh, we have a number of raised beds. And one of, kind of like the pride and joy, the, the central part of our backyard garden is our tomato plants. And that's because we really like salsa, and my wife makes really good salsa, and so we really like tomatoes. Anyway, you can see some of our plants here or from home, one of these sides, I'm not sure where. Um, so th this is our actual tomato beds in the back. Um, and one of the things we learned early on when we started gardening is that the kind of soil that something is planted in makes a real difference. Now that might sound like a dud to those of you who have gardened for a long time. For me, this was new. So we had, when we first started this, we got a, a bag of soil from, I don't know, like Home Depot or something, and we used that for one of the beds. And then we got some topsoil from uh, Tracy's sister and brother-in-law from their farm and used that for one of the other beds. The result was remarkable in how different it was. The, the tomato plants from the, the kind of bagged soil that we had purchased, they were fine. They produced tomatoes. But it was in comparison to the jungle that erupted from the topsoil, it was really, it was pale in comparison. I mean, you can kind of see in the picture, they just overflow. There were so many tomatoes because the soil was so much richer and better. The soil that something's planted in absolutely impacts the quality of the plant itself. We all know that. Well, now I do. And we see that in... Peter, as Peter talks to this early church, he emphasizes the, the importance of where they're rooted. So we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. And if you have a Bible, you can turn there. It's kind of towards the back. It's a really small book in the back of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have the scripture up on the screen so you can follow along there. This is what we read in 1 Peter. And we're going to skip around a little bit. We're going to start in verse 3. Peter writes, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation that we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. 
And remember that the heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God, and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth, so now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. All right, so again, Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are scattered all over the Roman Empire, particularly to a group who's in an area that we might now call Turkey, um, they're, they're, but they're kind of scattered all through this area. And they're part of the Roman Empire, which means Caesar is the leader. He, he's the one who's in charge. He's the one who everyone pledges allegiance to. In fact, Caesar is Lord was the common way to refer to, to pay respect to Caesar. He was the one that they depended on to care for them, to make sure that they were safe, that the, the government kind of went the way it was supposed to, that the citizens were taken care of, all of that. But for Christians, for early followers of Jesus, they pledged a different kind of allegiance. They said something quite different. They said, Jesus is Lord. Now for us, that sounds like a a faith, you know, an articulation of faith. But for these people, Jesus is Lord wasn't simply about some kind of faith thing over here and then the rest of life existed over here. It was about this acknowledgement that Jesus ruled over and above any power or authority. That's the language the scripture often uses, these ideas of powers and authorities, that it was Jesus, the, the one who was crucified and resurrected, who in fact was the one who was in charge of all things, was the one that they depended on. Peter talks about how their hope is in the salvation that they have in Christ. Their hope rests not in what Caesar decides or what Caesar does or, or how Rome does this thing or that, but their hope is firmly rooted in the God revealed in Jesus who is at work in rescuing them and the, the whole world. This was their hope. This was where they were rooted. And Peter wanted to remind them that even though Caesar is powerful and Rome is huge, I mean, this is the entire known world. And it feels true that Caesar is Lord. What's actually true is that Jesus is Lord. That the one that you hope in is above Caesar. Your rescue comes not from this political power, but from the creator of all things as revealed in Jesus. That's where your hope is rooted. And because of this hope, Peter says, so be holy. That the response, or maybe even the fruit of being rooted in this hope of salvation is holiness. So what does that mean? When we hear holiness, we often think about um, like this, like holier than thou, right? People who we might, it's kind of a derogatory way we might refer to someone who's really picky and kind of likes to point out the imperfections in everyone. Maybe like a Ned Flanders kind of a character, right? Like if, if you're familiar with Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, uh, he's this character who really focuses a lot on, on personal purity and, and frankly everyone else's purity, and he can be quite judgmental. And that's often how we think about holiness. It's this idea of perfection or kind of getting everything right, not ever being wrong. But this isn't actually the biblical understanding of holy. The biblical understanding of holy is derived from God's own character. 
rooted in God as creator, the one who is good. In fact, we only understand what good is based on God's character. God shows us what it means to be good. God's goodness is God's holiness. It's the goodness of God that makes God holy. And so when scripture talks about holiness, it's focused primarily on God's goodness. Now, as we see this play out, particularly in the Old Testament, what we start to see is that there are certain, because God is so good, things that are not good, often called impure or unclean, can't be in God's presence. The first place we kind of see this play out is uh, in the garden after humans uh, rebel and they have to kind of leave God's presence. And then we see like when Moses comes to the burning bush and he has to kind of stay back because God is holy, he can't come near. And this theme again and again of people can't approach God's goodness because it's so pure that no impurity can be in its presence. And so much of the Old Testament is focused on making sure that we do not get impure, that impurity isn't transmitted to us. Uh, We learn a lot in in books like Leviticus in the Old Testament about ways that impurity gets transmitted. So we learn that it can be transmitted through certain foods, maybe, um, through touching people who are diseased, dead bodies, even certain like bodily fluids. So like even a woman's menstruation cycle, right? She, She was impure. So she, it kind of separated her because that impurity could be transmitted. But as you go through the Old Testament, one of the interesting things we begin to see is a shift in how this is understood. Whereas in the beginning, we understand that impurity is transferred, and so we have to be careful not to be impure. As we get into the prophets, we begin to see that they're anticipating a time when that shifts, so that no longer is it that impurity is transferred, but in fact, the purity is, or or holiness, that it's not the, the unholiness that gets transferred, but it's the holiness itself that makes the unholy holy. We see it in, for example, Ezekiel, which is this um, kind of wild prophetic book that we get towards the end of the Old Testament. And the prophet Ezekiel, towards the end of the book in chapter 47, has this vision of the temple of God, which, as we talked about last week, was the physical place where God's presence, God's holiness resided. And in Ezekiel's vision, there was a river that flowed out of the temple into the world. And as it did, everywhere that it went, it brought life. Things grew up. And so it was the holiness that brought life to the world, not the world that made it unholy, right? So the, the holiness now was what was transmitted. It was the holiness that changed what it touched. And this anticipates Jesus. When Jesus arrives on the scene, one of the the unexpected things that we find is how much his holiness is transmitted. We've been talking a lot about the unexpectedness of Jesus on Wednesday nights. If you've joined us on Discord, Carmen Carpenter has been taking us through a, a study on the unexpected ways of Jesus. And we see that here. One of the things we see most unexpected in Jesus is that rather than being the good kind of holy man who avoids touching things that are impure or unclean, Jesus woefully and intentionally touches what is perceived as unclean. And instead of him becoming unclean or impure, he makes it pure. He makes it holy. So Jesus touches diseased people, lepers, and they become undiseased, healed. 
He, he touches dead bodies, and instead of him becoming impure or unclean, they become alive. He, he touches a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and she becomes whole. Again and again, we see Jesus transmitting his holiness to others. He's not infected by the impurity, but he's transmitting the holiness, the goodness, into the lives around him. And as Jesus sends, in his, one of his last recorded speeches with his followers, he says, you're going to do greater things than these. So as Jesus sends out his followers, his disciples, his students into the world, he sends them out to do what he's been doing, to transmit God's goodness in the world. We see this in the book of Acts, where again and again we see the, the early like, leaders in the church doing these miraculous signs where demons are cast out. Unclean spirits is what the Bible calls them, right? So their presence, because God's spirit is at work in them, casts out what's unclean, brings healing and holiness and goodness. They're a source of God's goodness in the world. This is how God is working then and now to bring about God's good purposes in the world. God is making a people good, holy even, and through them bringing goodness into the world, bringing God's character, God's love, beauty, holiness, justice. That is being worked out in the world through us. This is how um, author Dallas Willard says it in his book, Renovation of the Heart. He says, in sending out his trainees, he, Jesus, set afoot a perpetual world revolution, one that is still in process and will continue until God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. As this revolution culminates, all the forces of evil known to mankind will be defeated, and the goodness of God will be known, accepted, and joyously conformed to in every aspect of human life. He has chosen to accomplish this with and in part through his students. The revolution of Jesus is the first place and continuously is, I'm sorry, is in the first place and continuously a revolution of the human heart or spirit. His is a revolution of character which proceeds by changing people from the inside through ongoing personal relationship to God in Christ and one another. The way that God chooses to change the world, to bring about salvation and transformation in, in the world is by bringing about salvation and transformation in us and then working through us in the world. The, the weird thing about the church, because when we think church, we often think about church as this like thing that people do on Sundays that's full of ritual and, and gatherings like this, and some of that's true. But in a much bigger way, the church is the way that God chooses to change the world. The church is how God is at work in transmitting God's holiness, God's goodness in the world. First in us, changing us and making us good, and then through us by his spirit in the world. Now, this is hard for us to wrap our heads around because we so often see our own imperfections and the imperfections of people around us. And frankly, in our culture right now, it's really easy for us to assume that the way that God is most going to work in the world is through political processes. That really what God needs is for us to align ourselves well with the right party. 
to vote correctly in the fall. I mean, this is an election year, as you guys know, right? And, and a lot of the energy and a lot of our concern comes through, like, are, are we going to vote for the right person? Are we going to get the right person in office so that the right things can happen? And I don't want to diminish how important those conversations and those actions are. Being involved in political processes are important. But I do want to say that is not how God changes the world. Important things are done in that realm, but that is not the fundamental way that God chooses to bring about transformation. Believe it or not, it's through you and me, people who God is at work in making holy and through whom God is transmitting his holiness into the world. This is what it means to be the church, and this is the call for us, to be holy. But that doesn't just look like being morally good people, though that's good, but even beyond simple morality, what that means, what that looks like, Peter says this way at the end of our, our passage we read. He says, love each other deeply with all your heart. Love each other deeply with all your heart. Again, that sounds simple until it gets to the point where you actually need to love someone, particularly someone with whom you disagree. But the way that God works his holiness out in us and through us in the world is as we learn how to live in self-giving love for one another and for others. Learning to love those we disagree with is going to be a key. I, I think it's going to be one of the primary ways that God is at work in the church. The opportunity that we have in front of us right now as, as people who live in this time and place, as people in the United States during this time, is to learn what it means to love one another deeply. Regardless of whether or not we agree on all of these things, how do we work to love each other? Even as we argue over important, necessary things, how do we do so in a way that models the self-giving love of Christ? That's the work before us, and it's the way that God is, gonna, is going to change us and change the world. So two questions I want to leave you with, and then we're going to interact for just a minute. Uh, we're going to try anyway. The two questions I would love for you to think about this week is, one, where is your hope, or what or who are you hoping in? What is the person or the thing that you expect is going to make it all better? Is it a political, an individual representing a political party? Is it a, an ideology? Is it your hope that God has in Christ rescued the world and is working for our salvation in us and through us to bring his holiness to bear in the world around us? That, that's the gospel. But where are we putting our hope? And then second, where or how are you actively loving someone with whom you disagree? Again, I think this is where the rubber meets the road right now for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus. Are we actually embodying what it means to love our enemies, those who disagree with us? Or are we simply choosing sides and christening our side as the right ones and feeling okay about hating our enemies because, well, they're really wrong. So what is your hope in or who is your hope in? 
And where are you actively at work in loving someone you disagree with? So we're going to try and interact here for just a couple of minutes. Um, we tr- you know, when we're together, we try and do this. We struggled to do this a little bit online. We're going to try and do it here now. Um, if you have a comment you want to throw up on, if you're watching us live, you can try and throw it up on YouTube and we can interact around that. As far as here, what we're going to try and do, so we're not passing a mic around, um, if you have a question or a thought, I just invite you to stand and to say it. Don't remove your mask. Um, I know that's going to make it muffled and weird, but I'm going to do my best to hear you and I'll repeat the question and then we'll try to engage that way. So just for um, we'll, we'll do one or two questions and we'll see how this goes, or one or two thoughts. So if you have something you'd like to share, I just want to invite you to stand up and you can ask your question or share your thought and we'll try and engage around that for just a minute. Go ahead, Julia. Mm. So the question was, where is the line between loving someone you disagree with and permitting you permitting them to hurt you? And that's a great question. And I think this is where love is often misunderstood as just being nice. When we think love, we think being kind to people, being nice to people. And that might be an element of it. You don't want to be a jerk. That's not very loving. Um, But allowing someone to abuse you is in no way loving towards them because we don't believe that someone acting as an abuser is good for them. And it's definitely not uh, good for you. It doesn't enable you to be all God made you to be. So having strong boundaries and being able to say what's appropriate and what's not in relationship is actually really important for loving people Um, because you can't love someone if the entire time you're worried about kind of protecting yourself. Um, That becomes really difficult. So I do think we need to be able to have really good boundaries when we do that. And and loving people does not mean being a punching bag for them. Um, Sometimes, I mean, it will require sacrifice. It's going to be uncomfortable for us. But if it's destructive, then we need to draw some lines and, and care for ourselves well. It's a good question. Another one? Thought or a question? Yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, if I can try to sum up that real quick. So um, the statement was, one, uh, in response to the question, is that our hope should be in Jesus, uh, and two, that we need to be able to respectfully disagree, that that's part of what it means to, uh, to be in community together. And I think I would agree with that. I mean, I think the first one, one thing I'd say is, um, you had mentioned that our, our hope in Jesus is in some way potentially tied to 
things returning to normal. And I guess I would say, and maybe you didn't intend to say it that way, but our hope in Jesus is, in spite of whether or not things ever get back to normal, that we trust that God is good, that it's in God that we trust, not in some sense of normalcy, um, but that God will be at work bringing good and life and beauty in us and around us, through us, even if things never get back to normal. Um, and then the second thing I would say is, yeah, and, and I want to be clear, d- there are really important things to disagree about. I'm not saying that we need to say there's, nothing's important, nothing's matter, nothing matters, we should all just get along. Oh, no, we might need to argue vigorously over issues of like justice and, and what's right. Like Those things are really important, and we might need to really argue and wrestle over that. But it's really different to do that face-to-face with someone that you recognize as a human being and in a way that is simply about ideas in which you're kind of knocking people over just to be right. And I do think um, there, a lot would shift for us if we could sit face-to-face with brothers and sisters that we disagree with and actually argue through really important things. We may actually be able to move forward together. Um, because, I, you know, I think that's where God is at work in those really difficult but necessary conversations. Um, and, of course, this doesn't say everything about everything, right? Like, there's lots of questions then that come up about, well, so how do you engage politically and all of those kind of, And those are important conversations to have. Uh, but it, it starts with, where is our hope? What are we ultimately hoping in to save us and the world? Um, and as followers of Jesus, our answer is it's in God's work in us and through us in the world that we're trusting that God is bringing life and hope and restoration. Now I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to invite the worship team to come up, and uh, we're going to wrap up with a final song, and then we'll have a, a brief announcement or two to bring our time to a close. Let me pray. God, in some ways it feels too little to say that the way you choose to work to bring about change in the world is through the church because we know how imperfect we are, how, how sometimes little it feels like we're able to accomplish when it comes to huge issues of um, just bringing about justice and righteousness and uh, a community that's more loving and good. That feels really hard. But we also, we also remember, Jesus, that you told parables about mustard seeds that grew into these giant plants that offered shade for, you know, the birds. And so we trust that even in these small things like this community, that we can trust that your spirit is at work in us, that as we learn what it means to allow you to shape us and transform us, that we can be channels of your holiness in our community, in our relationships, in our neighborhoods, in the world. Help us, to, help us to hope in you over and against anything else and to live as people of hope who are holy just as you are holy. It's in Jesus' name we pray.